Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and this is my co-host, Gabby Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we watched the 1999 comedy Dick, a strange and hilarious little movie that didn't get the attention it deserved at the time, and it is now its 20th anniversary as of, I think, next week, so we thought this would be a good time to talk about it. Starring Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams, it's about two airheaded teenage girls who accidentally witness key events in the Watergate scandal, leading them to become the anonymous whistleblower known as Deep Throat. So this movie came out obviously before the real identity of Deep Throat became known uh, around 10 years after its release, I would say. 2005. Yeah, okay, so fewer than 10 years. <laughs> but uh, it was clearly a joke then, but part of the joke is that the identity of Deep Throat was not known. And uh, I first watched it when I was in high school. My mother is an American history teacher who teaches about Watergate and also about the history of the presidency. So this movie was very much targeted at her specifically. I think one of her students recommended it to her and she was a bit skeptical because of the just the sort of way it presented on the cover of the DVD as a sort of serious adult person. But we watched it together and... I have rarely seen her so hysterical at a film. Like she was just beside herself because A, it's funny and awesome. And B, it is so unbelievably specific about all of the historical Watergate stuff and about Nixon. The sort of genius of this movie is that it is very, very weird and very historically specific while sort of being wrapped in the guise of a sort of mainstream yeah, I mean, it's, like, movie. really frivolous. Like, the two main yes. characters are just absolute dummies, and they're just giggling all the time, and they feel like really real, stupid 15-year-old girls. Yes. At this point, like, Michelle Williams and Kirsten Dunst actually look like 15-year-olds, which just makes it funnier. <laughs> and then you just have, like, all of this very real Watergate stuff. They've got character actor Dan Hedaya as Nixon, who... You'll have probably seen him in, like, some movie. He's one of these people who's in, like, everything. Um, and then you've got the two journalists who were investigating uh, Woodward and Bernstein are played by the comedy actors uh, Bruce McCulloch and Will Ferrell, who's obviously really famous. They're very different from like what we think of as the public perception of those people because they're best known as being played by Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford in All the President's Men. So this movie is kind of a parody of that film where they've taken these characters who were like very heroically portrayed and just make them this pair of egomaniac idiots who are both like fighting over the story. And um, I'm going to assume that like probably some listeners are not super familiar with Watergate. Like everyone is aware that Watergate exists, but you know, obviously the educational document of our time is just watching All the President's Men, which is honestly quite an efficient way of finding out. But basically it was a scandal that kind of ended Nixon's presidency, like throughout his entire political career, he was well known among anyone who knew about politics. He was like corrupt as hell and a huge asshole. Like his nickname was literally Tricky Dick before he got elected president. But um, during this scandal, what happened is he got some employees of the Republican Party and the government and sort of agents to go and burglarize the Democratic campaign offices. And they were witnessed and that kind of kicked off a sequence of events that led to like a very long running series of investigative articles in various newspapers, but primarily the Washington Post with Woodward and Bernstein spearheading this investigation that was helped by an anonymous source who was known as Deep Throat. And through that, they kind of proved that the president had personally solicited these burglars and kind of had 
been using what is now known as dirty tricks. And also this is how people find out that he was just chronically taping all of his conversations in the White House. So there's this massive kind of archive of tapes of him just saying deeply offensive and horrifying stuff. (laughs) But yeah, that is the general gist of what actually happened. And this movie reflects that, except um, Deep Throat is now two 15-year-old girls. Yes. So the setup for this in the film is that the Michelle Williams character lives in the Watergate Hotel with her mother, and they accidentally witness some of the uh, burglaring happening. Yeah, they, they witness a government agent who's very recognizable, yes. who just bumps into them on the stairwell and is like, oh, kids, go home. But he is actually there as part of the burglary. Right. So they have no idea what they've seen, which, to be fair, you probably wouldn't, even if you were a cognizant person. Then they're at the White House with the, their sort of school group, see the guy again, but are still like, what is he doing here? What's going on? And wind up with a important document that they are just like, oh, it's a souvenir from <laughs> the White House, which turns out to be very incriminating later. And then wind up sort of accidentally, from their point of view, in the back of the White House because Nixon's advisors are like, fuck, this, these girls are here. Like, they, we have to interrogate them. And they're like, what is going on? Nixon's dog, Checkers, sort of befriends them. Nixon hated his dog Checkers, which my mother was very amused was in this movie. Like there was a lot of stuff about Checkers. Um, And they kind of wind up being the official, in quotes, presidential dog walkers. Yeah, so they're just like super excited to be hanging out with a cute dog and meet the president. And they do not know anything about politics. I would not be surprised if they don't know what party he is in. They have like Saul Rubinek playing Henry Kissinger, which is a very entertaining piece of side casting. And they're in the background talking, having these really intense conversations. And then in the foreground, the girls are just paying attention to the dog. It's like a really lighthearted version of the sort of joke you get in Armando Iannucci political satires like Veep, the thick of it, where there's something really stupid and frivolous going on in the foreground and that kind of accidentally leads to the downfall of like a bigger problem, which is often how political scandals happen, right? So it's like, this is like the most extreme version of that. Yes. Clearly no one is taking them seriously, which they shouldn't be because they're not serious people, but also don't do this in front of other people ever. That's stupid. So they wind up kind of going back repeatedly, partially because they have accidentally been giving all of these people pot cookies and everyone is like, we love these cookies, keep bringing them back. (laughs) And they wind up being both the dock walkers and the official secret youth advisors to the president because he wants to keep them in his confidence in a way that's like secret so they won't tell anyone that they know him because they're afraid that you know, these girls know too much. Um, Of course, they're immediately telling everybody, but it doesn't matter because no one believes them because it's such an absurd story. And they wind up sort of accumulating all this information without realizing that they're accumulating it because they don't have any idea what's going on. And, um, and they just love the president. Right. They just love him. He's such a great guy. Yeah. The two big running jokes of this movie are just the fact that they call him Dick, so they're all having conversations about how much they love Dick, which is hilarious, objectively. And the fact that they're just constantly, accidentally feeding people weed cookies because they don't know there's weed in the cookies. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This is sort of the level of humor this movie is operating on. I mean, it's like, it's it's kind of a companion piece to Wet Hot American Summer, even though there's very little crossover in terms of creative people, if any. I think that is a great comparison. It's not as weird as What Hot American Summer because what is, but it's a similar kind of like some of the humor is quite juvenile, like the weed cookies, but then you have this other 
like the political stuff is operating on another level. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of Death of Stalin in terms of the specificity of the history. That is obviously a more sophisticated movie and is much darker, but is doing something similar in the sense that it is very, very historically accurate. I mean, that movie is actually historically accurate. Like everything that happens in the Death of Stalin actually happened. It's just presented in a funny way. But this is presenting a sort of fantasy version of history. Obviously, Deep Throat was not two teenage girls, but it is using very specific real things that happened in history and then infusing them with this sort of weirdo humor. Yeah, it's just skewering the banality of evil because like, the yes. whole point is that everything that's going on here is deeply terrible. But because it's deeply terrible, we kind of want to think that everyone involved was really impressive in this sort of like looming Darth Vader-like figure. And most of them are just idiots and self-absorbed and cruel and petty. And just one of the, my favourite jokes in this is like when the two girls are meeting with the journalists and the journalists are trying to figure out who they've seen in the White House and they're like trying to show them this photograph of the White House staff, like point to the man you saw. And one of them is just like, I never thought about how similar they all looked. And I'm just like, this is just, it's so right. <laughs> and the picture of them truly is just like it's a just bunch like a line of, of white men looking dour. <laughs> yeah. And they all have glasses and like the same haircut and they do in fact look identical. And the, you know, Woodward and Bernstein in this are presented as just nightmare, stupid rivals, and they're sort of competing for everything, and are juvenile idiots, which sort of goes along with, like, Will Ferrell's comedy persona at the time. I mean, and also, the thing about All the President's Men, which obviously is a great movie, it is very much like a Woodward and Bernstein puff piece, because yes. at the, like that movie came out, like, a couple of years after the scandal like usually that kind of film comes out way after the fact and the reason why it happened so rapidly is because once they'd finished publishing this massive like world-changing series of articles and became celebrities when basically before then these reporters were not well known like one of them was relatively young and at the start of his career they published this book and literally while they were writing the book they were already consulting on the movie adaptation where they are themselves protagonists. So they've got like these two hot guys playing them and they're all like very serious. And so I'm sure there are some elements of that story which are now like immortalized on this film, but are actually very self-aggrandizing and sort of not necessarily accurate because that's how it works. Whereas this, it's like, thank you. Just maybe give us the other side of this where you're both just a pair of dummies. <laughs> well, this was the big discussion around the post a few years ago, which is sort of about the same period involving uh, Catherine Graham, played by Meryl Streep in the movie, who was the publisher of the Washington Post at that time, who was very, very heavily involved with the Watergate stuff, obviously as the publisher of the yeah, Washington Post. Yeah, she's like Post. not in All the President's Men. They make like one sexist joke about her, and that's literally it. Yeah. We did an episode in that, actually. We did an episode in the Post. Yes. I have never seen All the President's Men, amazingly. I didn't like the Post very much. Yes, I thought it was I stupid. <laughs> I liked it a lot. That was our, our division on that movie. But uh, just to speak to the sort of bias of yeah, that sure. film. And I, I haven't seen All the President's Men, but even as someone who hasn't seen it, there are obvious visual references in Oh yeah, this like all movie. of the offices for the oh, newspaper yeah. are just the same set, basically. Yes, it's very, very clear that that's the case. If you've seen any still images of All the President's Men, which if you are remotely familiar with like American culture, you probably have. There's one very famous photo in particular. It's identical. And clearly the stuff with the journalists is playing off of that. And so that is, it's fun that they're sort of dealing with the Watergate stuff as history. And then also the, that sort of cultural reference too, both of which are like big man things. Right. And then you have these very frivolous, like blonde teenage girls 
sort of swooping in and being like, hello. <laughs> oh my God, there's a dog. <laughs> yes. And one of absolutely the funniest things in this movie is that Michelle Williams' character becomes infatuated with the president in a sort of typical teen girl crush way, which is it's just so, so, oh my God. So she start the movie starts off with like the reason that they kind of stumble upon the burglary is that she has uh, an enormous crush on a famous celebrity figure at the time who I don't even know I was like, they're all like obsessed with somebody Bobby and I'm like, who's yeah. Bobby? They've got all these, I mean, he's like a, the Justin Bieber of 1973. Yeah, you I know? don't even know who it is. <laughs> and there's like some contests where you can like write in about why you should get to go on a date with this person, right? Whatever. She's got all these photos of this guy on her wall, like classic teen girl bedroom, but like to the nth degree, like she's really committed, right? The production design in, in the in oh. the little flat apartments is great. Oh. There's some really fun, colorful 70s stuff going on. <laughs> yes. And she also has a, this is not related to this, but she has a TV that's just like a hot pink, like it's like an oval. oval. It's like an egg TV. <laughs> yes, with a screen in the middle of it. Really. Mwah. And so as they spend more time with the president, she gets over Bobby whatever and then decides that she loves Dick and has all of these clippings of him put up on her wall and like photos his face cut out and whatever. And when they are in the same room together is doing this sort of like teenage girl like, oh my God, she's so flustered and, you know, can't find the words and whatever. And I mean, Michelle Williams, one of our great actresses. And I think people kind of forget that she is so fucking funny because she now well, she does... chooses so many really depressing roles. Right. But in real life, she's funny. Like, if you see interviews with her, you're yes. like, oh, okay, you're funny. And she had a, a role in the um, Amy Schumer movie, I Feel Pretty, this past year, part of which I saw on a plane. And it didn't Yeah, make... any Amy Schumer movie is a movie you're only watching if you're on a plane. Yes. It didn't make very much money. I actually liked what I saw of it fine, but um, I was on a plane, so I didn't finish it. The Amy Schumer's dream in this movie is to work for this uh, cosmetics company. And Michelle Williams is the this woman who's like the face of the cosmetics company. Like she owns it. But it's actually her mom's company, I think. And I got far enough to see uh, a scene that's like a, a board meeting or something. And she's nominally in charge, but her mother is clearly in charge. And she's clearly just like a ditz idiot who is terrified of her mother. And every time she tries to say anything, her mom's like, or do you mean this? And she's like, ah, yes, I meant this. And just that one scene was so funny. I was like, oh, right, you are a great comedian. You just don't choose to do it that often, which is her prerogative, and that's fine. But this watching this movie really reminded me of how talented she is in that realm also. I mean, this was like right as she was starting Dawson's Creek, like the same time. Yes, she was really, really early in her career. And the the stuff with the romance in huge quotes is perfect for her because she gets to do this like serious like sincere you know she just feels so much but it's preposterous right and so <laughs> it's simultaneously really really funny but gets to make use of her ability to like emote things on screen right and Kirsten Dunst sort of figures out that some she figures out exactly what's going on and forces her to confess and instead of being like this is absurd and gross she's just like okay great like tell me about it and she and uh, Michelle Williams has this huge scrapbook of like all of this stuff relating to Nixon and they go through it and oh my it's just it is it's amazing this culminates with like a dream sequence fantasy that she has <laughs> 
There is a romantic Nixon dream sequence with Nixon and a horse. On the beach. <laughs> Coming up to her and, I mean, I don't know what he says, but the typical romantic nonsense. And then they, like, dance around to, like, montage music. I mean, it's like a 15-year-old's vision. I love it. But of- it's also, like, obviously, kind of, teen crushes are an essential staple of all teen movies, especially comedies, right? Well, very, very few kind of illustrate the weirder crushes that I think especially girls have. Like, I'm sure boys have weird crushes too, but boys are less encouraged to talk about them. Whereas I would say it's pretty normal for girls to have a crush on someone where looking back at it, you're like, why? Like, literally (laughs) Nixon, right? Like, there will have been teenage girls who had crushes on Nixon, like, if someone is a public figure. And obviously, nowadays, people kind of talk about it like, haha, remember, everyone was, like, super into this Disney villain or whatever, but, like, (laughs) unattractive celebrities. And it's like, that is the kind of thing that happens, like, with these kids who are, you know, too immature to realise how fucking hilariously ridiculous this is. But it's also, like, yeah, maybe that is the more discerning women is going to prefer a sophisticated older gentleman <laughs> to like a, just a crass pop star, you know? And it's just portrayed in such a fun way that doesn't come across as creepy because none of the characters in this movie, like the men who are around them, are like sexualizing these girls. Thank God. But also it's like because they're so fucking, there's clearly children. They're like dumbass children and they're just acting like idiots and all these people have different priorities. It's interesting to see this is like by a male filmmaker because it feels like such a kind of quintessential girl flashback kind of thing to include. But Andrew Fleming, he kind of mostly does comedies, several comedies that are like not particularly beloved. Like last year, there was that Paul Rudd movie about like, what if you were a gay couple? And I was like, this doesn't belong in 2018. It's very dated. But like, um, he did The Craft, right? Andrew Fleming wrote and directed The Craft. So this is a man who was like at the epicenter of 90s teen girl genius and is still going and is like directing some pretty cool TV shows and stuff. So well done, Andrew Fleming. But um, yeah, they did a very good job on the teenage girl mindset and just sort of like the priorities they have, which kind of reminded me of you occasionally see people posting like excerpts from their childhood diaries online and I can't remember who posted this one, but there was there was one which was either from someone famous or it was just like a viral internet post where it was like someone who posted their diary from the moon from the day of the moon landing, and they were just like, "Oh, man landed on the moon," and then there's just like two paragraphs talking about how they think someone at school has a crush on them, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, very few children are politically engaged, and very few people in general, and like all of the characters in this who are not immediately involved with politics are not interested in the Watergate scandal, and it's only like in retrospect that the Watergate scandal is seen as important because like one of the details they have in this movie is like halfway through when the girls are already really heavily embroiled in this massive massive political event it's always on tv because it's getting so much press coverage and her mom is like god I'm so sick of seeing this all the time it's just this meaningless scandal it doesn't it's just completely pointless and it's just a waste of time and people are trying to take down the president and then obviously by the end she and the American public's views had changed but there was a long period where people were like, oh, this doesn't seem like it's important. Well, also, in, right initially when it happened, people did not understand, or most people did not understand what No, it was like a small of, news story. It was like, right. oh, it was a break-in at the Democratic Party headquarters. Like, Yes. Deal. Before his involvement really was known, nobody got what was going on. And it, when it really blew up was when he started firing people in the Justice Department because he didn't want to get prosecuted. 
which people who follow current news in America may recognize from our current president. But that was when it really got to the point where everyone was like, oh shit, right? Because that's obstruction of justice. And the movie handles that by, there are comments where he's talking about like how he didn't obstruct justice, or he asks his lawyer, John Dean, who famous person in history and in this movie is just like someone who's annoyed with these teenage girls he tells him to do something and the lawyer doesn't want to do it and he's like or says something about someone else and he's like well that's why i fired him or something right so this is being referenced but because the main characters are not paying attention to fucking anything it's not like there's a big alert that like nixon has been firing people which was major news at the time but they're just not clued in to what yeah. is going on. They don't know on. anything about politics. And like, you know, Kirsten Dunn's brother gets drafted into the Vietnam War and her priority is like, do I get his bedroom? <laughs> well, and even once they discover that he's taping things and hear... So the big chain, like turn in the movie is when they realize that he's actually a bad guy, which happens when they discover that he's taping people. And even when they discover this, their first instinct is not like, why is the president taping people? Their first instinct is that this is Michelle Williams's chance to tell him how she really feels. So she just sits there and records this like endless message about <laughs> her emotions. She sings the Elton John song terribly. It goes on and on. This was one of the moments where my mother was like beside herself because... Kirsten Dunn specifically is like, you've been talking for 18 and a half minutes. And there is, in fact, in the Watergate tapes, a, like a missing oh chunk that's 18 and a half minutes long. <laughs> which is just, I mean, delicious. And then they go back on the tape for some reason and hear him screaming at the dog, which they're like, oh my God, he's yelling at checkers. And then also saying something anti-Semitic and something about Watergate signifying his involvement, which is how they wind up getting to the people at the post, right? And um, when they wind up talking to him about it, and then even to other people, their concern is not with Watergate. It is with the fact that he He's is mean, mean to, the, to dog. the dog and the anti-Semitic stuff, which is upsetting to them. But it's not the concrete political stuff. It's that, like, he's a mean person, which, I mean, that's bad. You shouldn't do those things. But it's all about the sort of, like, emotional stuff and it's also like the way that a lot of people just engage with politics in general it's like does someone seem nice right but you mentioned john dean did you know that john dean consulted on this film (laughs) i did not know a bunch of research like they filmed part of it on the white house lawn like obviously there's a set somewhere where every tv show and movie films their like awful office scenes they filmed that there but they, they like went in really detailed with a lot of the stuff, as you can probably tell. And they brought in John Dean, but apparently John Dean was a little bit difficult because he was so enthusiastic about the project that he was like, oh, I'll write a draft of the screenplay myself. And Andrew Fleming was like, oh, you, you don't need to do that. And he literally like wrote a draft with Andrew, which Andrew Fleming never read because he was like, I can't read this and I can't have like fucking John Dean co-writing my movie. And the studio was like, what the fuck's going on? So he was clearly very excited to be immortalized in this teen girl comedy that no one watched. That is amazing. He is a very humorous character in this. Not a major character, but he's, he's quite yeah. funny. He's slightly more sympathetic than the other figures. Yes. Not huge, But that's not really hard when Kissinger is yes. <laughs> on the cast list. The Kissinger stuff I thought was great. Oh god, he's so fucking good. He's just presented as this, I mean, correctly, as just this, like, craven idiot. 
Saul Rubinek, truly one of America's great character writers. Cannot go so wrong good. with him. <laughs> so once they're, they've sort of turned on the president, they are very disenchanted. Michelle Williams is heartbroken, of course, because, you know, why did she ever love Dick? And they decide to do prank calls because that is, of course, the thing that will make you feel better if you are a 15-year-old girl and you're feeling sad. It's prank call people. Um, I, I don't know if teen girls do this anymore. I definitely did this. Not all the time, but I have I done mean, this in like, my life. I mean, we're obviously old, so we don't know now, but I'm going to go ahead and assume there's a cultural equivalent of prank calling yes. that involves probably TikTok. Yes. But uh, they decide to prank call the Washington Post because, sure, and wind up like telling them stuff about Watergate that they just think is hilarious and um and there's these two journalists like hanging onto their every word like are you being watched they're like looking around it's like their mom is watching them (laughs) yes being watched right now and they're like uh, the journalists are like fighting over the telephone because they're children um and they set up a meet in you know a parking lot and when they see that it's these teenage girls whose jog has literally eaten the creep list which is the committee to um Reelect the president, which was the group that paid off, they paid bribes to the people who knew about Watergate. They are like, they had given them some of this information on the phone and they're like, yeah, the dog ate the thing, so we don't have that for you. But this leads to this situation where they get give them some more information and then like sneak into the house of somebody to steal tapes. And there are various shenanigans, all of which are very humorous. And ultimately, of course... Nixon resigns and uh it's very satisfying and the end of the movie is just very very beautiful uh the closing montage is set to you're so vain which is perfect <laughs> because it there too... are so many great music choices oh. in this movie but I also noticed they were like I can't listen I was like every single time a song came on I was like oh it's one of the songs from the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack I know multiple <laughs> times I was like Fuck those fuckers. Like, Jesus Christ, I hate that this is now associated with that. But You're So Vain was perfect because now, like, they, we have some pretty concrete ideas about who Carly Simon was referring to in that song. But for a long time, it was a complete mystery. And obviously, it was not a president. But it's the same kind of, like, parallel thing of this sort of cultural or, like, public figures or ideas that are mysteries and um yeah it's just a perfect song to end on and it's a great song the way it's all cut together is just like perfect i won't spoil what happens at the very end but it is very very satisfying as a conclusion to the film yeah i just think that the screenplay for this is perfect i just think it's a perfectly written movie in a way that is very hard to achieve because it's following basically the sort of expected structure, but in a way that is very ingenious and kind of idiosyncratic. And um, if people are interested in screenwriting, like this genuinely is, if you're interested in like comedy screenwriting, it's a perfect movie. And honestly, like Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams, who at this point were literally teenagers, like I think Kirsten Dunst was 16 or 17 when they filmed this, they are better than a lot of adult comedians like adult comic actors who are helming big movies they are just so funny and they're like such a delightful double act like obviously by this point Kirsten Dunst had been acting for like probably close to a decade like she was a child star but um 
1999 was a wild year for her. She had four movies out this year, and three of them were this, Drop Dead Gorgeous and The Virgin Suicide. So, like, that's three legit incredible movies, two of which are regularly still watched today. So, well done, Kristen. The Virgin Suicides, I've thought about a lot watching this, not because it's remotely thematically similar in any way. It is not. But it is also a period piece and is set in the 70s, which is not exactly this period, but is close enough that she has a kind of similar look going on, which like she just looks right for that period. She really pulls it off. And she is also just incredible in that film. And I think she is just amazing in this movie. She's playing the sort of outwardly ditzier one of the two. Like they're both idiots, but Michelle Williams is the one who has more, as I was kind of referring to. Like she's quieter. They make a joke about her having overdue like library book finds and she seems to have more sort of like very emotional. Whereas Kirsten Dunst is fully just like bright teenage girl. Like she's just completely... Everything is kind of funny to her and she makes jokes about everything and nothing phases her. And um, she is just so hilarious and likable. And obviously this movie doesn't work at all if you don't have the two actresses who are completely charming and delightful because they really are playing idiots. (laughs) So it would be easy for the movie to be quite mean to them. And it, I don't think it is at all. They're obviously very sweet girls. They're just dummies. I mean, this is like the heyday of movies about dumb women. It's true. <laughs> it really and it's is like, true. And it's like, because there's so many movies about dumb men, because that's like the basically the centerpiece of all of comedy. But like, people don't really like to make movies about dumb women that much. And I love it. <laughs> I know. I was thinking, like, we've really we've done well on our podcasts to uh, to highlight some of these films, and we very recently did Muriel's Wedding, which similarly, just about an idiot. You know, I think it can be easy to be resistant of these films because, especially if a man is making them, it's very easy to just be cruel about it, right? But something like this or Clueless, which has which definitely shares some DNA in terms of the main character. 15-year-old girls are stupid. Like, they are all stupid. They're not all stupid in this way. Like, I was not anything like this as a 15-year-old, obviously. I was very, like, intellectually intelligent and, like, read serious books and whatever. But I was still an idiot. Like, everyone is an idiot at that age. It's fine. And so, particularly the fact that they're 15 and not 17, like, that's a big two-year span. 17-year-olds are also idiots, but you have acquired a lot in just those two years of knowledge and awareness, right? 15 is really, really young. And so you're watching this and you're just like, yes, this all makes sense to me. (laughs) It makes sense that you are behaving in this manner. And the movie allows them to simultaneously be very much the active protagonists of the film. Like they're really driving the action and also understands where they are coming from and the realistic levels of like awareness that they have about things and doesn't try to make them precocious in any way. I love that they basically wear not every different kind of clothing that you could be wearing at this time, but like their sense of style is completely incoherent because they're just trying like well, every there's a period different where they're thing. like, oh, let's just dress like middle-aged Republican women halfway through, but it's all like really absurd, colorful 70s clothing. Yes. And it is all actually clothes from the 70s. They just went and got like a bunch of 
they didn't make the costumes. They were like, yeah. okay, just go to like the warehouse in Hollywood and get all the really over the top seventies outfits, and they rule. Yeah, yeah, it it just so completely works. All the aesthetic stuff happening in this movie is very satisfying. The production design and the costumes. Their costumes are great because they're so over the top and everyone else that they're interacting with for most of the movie is like a boring middle-aged man who's wearing like a suit. So that's fun. There's a joke right at the end where they are looking at themselves in the mirror and are like, we look so good. And they look like idiots because they're wearing this like outrageous well, clothes. It's like, just like the Romy and Michelle joke. Yes. Um, because like our, our tastes have just changed a lot since then but yeah i just think that that balance of loving and respecting your characters while also being able to be funny about them because you understand the limitations of them and that's where the comedy is coming from is can be difficult to strike and i think this movie does it in a really smart and satisfying way and obviously the actors are totally in on it it's like they get it and are pulling it off very well i mean kristen dunn's doing this and drop dead gorgeous in the same year is like she had very good taste, or her agent did, but also kind of the nuance in those two comedy performances. So um, Drop Dead Gorgeous, I think recently just had a resurgence a couple of weeks ago because it showed up on Hulu and it had never been available to stream anywhere. So people really love this movie. It's like a definite cult favourite, but it's having a comeback. And it's a very dark comedy about beauty pageants where she's this poor girl who lives in just like a small town and wants to win a beauty pageant. And it's kind of about all the other entrants being murdered, basically. Uh, And it's just, it's very funny. It's got a lot of like very weird little character performances, including her, because obviously she's the sort of, you love her, she's the protagonist, she's this really sweet girl and you really want her to win because she deserves it. And like the rich beauty pageant girl who keeps actually winning instead of her is like clearly a huge evil bitch. But like she's still a really eccentric character. Like she's a 16-year-old whose summer job is she works in a morgue doing the makeup for the corpses. <laughs> so it's like it's just very quirky. And like everyone has these really strong, I think it's Minnesota accents. Like it's it's just it's incredibly fun. And like that is like a slightly ditzy performance, but like in a more normal way, whereas this is like this absurd over-the-top like ditz. And it's just like you've got just two such fun roles in the same year, and then the fucking virgin suicides. Yes. Which is on a completely other level. I mean, she was just great at playing a teenage girl. She just got it. I mean, she obviously was one, but it's it's yeah. hard to do. A lot of people are not good at it, and she really, really was. I mean, she's a great actress. Both of them continue to be excellent in their adulthoods, which is great. Yeah, I was I was just looking her up after watching the movie and I was really excited to see she's doing a prestige comedy drama series about multi-level marketing scams. And I was like, yes, this is a great topic. <laughs> Produced by Yorgos Lanthimos. So, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that'll I'm be fucking that. weird. I'm excited about it. I mean, neither of them has hit the age where Hollywood usually will just be like, you're not getting roles anymore. But I sense that they will be fine. They're fine because like, also neither of them are like known for being the hot one. And yes. both of them are aging normally, and also both of them are happy to do low-budget indie dramas. So. Well, the thing that Kirsten Dunst has done so successfully, which I think is interesting, is that she was the hot one when she was this age, right? I mean, not like the hot one singular, but like in The Virgin Suicides, for sure, she's playing like the sexy girl that yeah, and is she was like the desired. Love, she was like Mary Jane in the Spider-Man yep. franchise. And like, I mean, she was a very beautiful 
young person and she obviously is very attract- attractive as an adult too but she didn't make that her currency as an adult actress like she's still an attractive person but she doesn't star in movies where like that is the thing about her that is her characteristic and she's aging normally so she now is just like a normal adult person which i think will help her in the long run and michelle williams obviously ever since she got off of dawson's creek has basically done weird indie stuff with the occasional venom to make money which she will just say i'm doing this to make money and you know what that is fine oh my Congratulations god I she did to you Love oh she her. sure did Love her. i mean the interview she did when she got to venom she literally was like you always have to say things like this you know when you do these big studio movies but like really you're just doing them to make money and i was like you know what Good for you. You should be able to say that. Like, you're Michelle Williams. It's fine. Clearly, you are not doing Venom. And also, you're playing the fucking girlfriend. Any other It's like she's great in that movie, but basically her job is to stand there, deliver a dumb piece of dialogue in a personable way while wearing a stupid wig, and she succeeds. Loved Venom. And she said, like, I had no idea what was going on. It was whatever. Like, it was fine. She was very funny about it, because obviously Venom became this, like, bizarre phenomenon, and she was like, I had no fucking idea what was happening. Like... (laughs) And they're oh my making God, a crossover with her and Kirsten, you know, both the, the Spider-Man franchise alumni. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, great for them. Congratulations on your continued success. I have loved both of them since I was a teenager, so this was fun for me to watch in a nostalgic way, and I and enjoy it had a their... tiny little guest appearance from Ryan Reynolds. In oh like my two God, scenes a baby Ryan Reynolds. I saw his name in the credits, and I was like whoa like he's in this i wouldn't have remembered that because i didn't know who he was at the time oh no, no one did but um <laughs> he shows up for like one scene as like an idiot teen who kirsten Dunst like seduces in quotes and he just has this like round face because he hasn't chiseled himself into being a actor yet with like an eight pack and and he's like you know eighteen or something, and he is just it was really funny. It was like oh you're a big dumbass energy there. Oh yeah, playing a complete <laughs> idiot, very effectively, very funny. And um, it's always funny when you see an actor like that really early before they've were famous at all, because it's very different from when they are were are famous later and are doing the sort of big movie star roles. My dad always looks to go on people's IMDb and go back to the first credit they had, which is good value. You always find something humorous. And I'm sure this wasn't his first credit, but it has that same kind of thing where you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like you were too once just a random actor attempting to work. And this is the result. But uh, he's very good in it. So that was funny. Do we have anything else to say about Dick? No, I think. Yeah. Good movie. And if you missed out last week's episode on Midsummer, it's fantastic and you should listen to it. A very good episode from us, a pair of experts who disagreed a great deal on that film. Yeah, we had a disagreement episode last week and an agreement episode this week. So we're giving you some variety. And I know that listeners like variety. We get plenty of messages, both from people who are like, I hate it when mommy and daddy argue. And people who are like, isn't it great when you both fight? So we love to please everyone. We're doing we're doing our best to sort of cover all ground here. Obviously, we highly recommend this film if you haven't seen it. It's like an hour and a half long. It's so much fun. Yeah, it's, it's like a cute little like low effort, funny, dumb comedy. Yes, really, really great. 
Next week, we will be going, well, we're staying in the same year. We're staying in 1999, a very auspicious film year. A lot happened in 1999. Um, we're staying in 1999 for a very different kind of film. We're going to be discussing The Matrix. <gasps> the Matrix! Which I have never seen and will be seeing in a cinema this week. So I'm excited about that. Get ready for my fresh opinions as someone who knows a great deal about the plot of the Matrix, but has never actually witnessed it with my own two eyes. So, uh... And naturally, I love it. And I've seen the entire Wachowski filmography. So yes. So... I'm ready. <laughs> we'll be coming at this from two different perspectives. I've seen uh, several of, the, of their other films, but I'm not the expert that you are, of course, and I've never seen The Matrix. So... And it's probably the best one. Yeah, I'm excited. I just was too young to see it when it came out and then kind of never got around to it. I always meant to and it just didn't ever really happen. I was never avoiding it. Although I will say that all of the teen boys in high school, this the argument would, whenever anyone was talking about an existential issue, which often happens when you are a teenager, would inevitably just go to, well, but what if we're in the Matrix and none of this is real? Which puts you off things which has now been replaced by inception which if anything is more annoying because in the matrix there is like i would say close to zero philosophical questions in that film oh no whereas in the inception none. it's like oh is this real did you decode the plot and it's like no don't even attempt to decode the plot just watch the watch inception that's yes. our philosophy <laughs> as two people who love inception and have probably seen it about 10 times collectively yes. the film isn't that deep it is not it's quite <laughs> dumb in fact so uh yeah very excited to talk about this. Should be fun. Uh, give The Matrix a rewatch before next week's episode so you'll be fresh. As I assume that 95% of you have already seen it and that I am on an island by myself here. We are also this week beginning our North and South Book Club, which will go for around a month before we discuss it on the podcast at the beginning of August or mid-August. Uh, so if you want to discuss that with us and with our other Patreon subscribers, you can subscribe to our Patreon. Uh, we will be doing sort of book club posts there for a few weeks, and there's a schedule up on the Patreon, and then uh, we will be doing the episode uh, once we're done. So you can find that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Uh, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing on the Daily Dot, including most recently... I reviewed the new season of Veronica Mars, which I feel is probably relevant to a lot of listeners. Um, we're not going to do an episode on it because Morgan doesn't watch it, but it's really, really good. Veronica Mars rules. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. You can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. You can find the podcast on Twitter at overinvestedpod. We are on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. Bye.